Well, we are continuing our Summer Stories series. Summer Stories is a series of stories that you tell your kids, and you want them to have certain values and principles to live by, and so you tell them, do these things. But my question is, we tell our kids to do these things, but do we do them? So we've already talked a little bit about um, patience. Uh, we've talked about, uh, today we're talking about uh, self-control, right? So we want our kids to, to have self-control. How many have never told their kids to focus on self-control? I mean, seriously, right? But do we have self-control? That's the question for today, and it's a good one because uh, as I prepared this series, I thought, oh, well, this would be kind of a neat tie between kids and parents and all the things that we talk about. But man, has it been convicting. Because I'll tell my kids and my grandkids, this is, you know, these are the ideals. But as I observe my life, I'm not living what I'm telling my kids and grandkids. So what a wake-up call for me. Uh, and it's not meant to be a pound-over-the-head judgmental type of thing. It's meant to raise awareness. Because if we're aware of what we do, then we can change what we do. Is that not true? I hope, <laughs> by the power of the Spirit. So today, we're going to talk about this thing called self-control. Now, before we get into that, I want to ask you, uh, what did you think about when you were 17 years old? Just picture that in your head for a second. I'll throw up a picture. This is a 17-year-old. Uh, his name, well, I'm, I'm lazing people there. Sorry, dude. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, this is David. He's a 17-year-old. He wasn't thinking about too much other than an Astros game, and he had a great time. That's his brother and his father there. And as a 17-year-old, you know the one thing that I did not think? Am I going to make it home tonight? If you've been following the news, you may know this story. This was an Astros game on July 6th. Father and two sons went to observe the game. After the game, they were leaving the parking lot. Uh, there was a bit of a traffic jam. I mean, go figure, right? It's a major sporting event, and you're trying to get home. Tempers flared a little bit. There was a verbal exchange between the father and another individual, and there were some hand gestures uh, exchanged, as you can imagine. And then they got out of the parking lot, and Dad thinks, okay, well, that was frustrating, but it's over. It was not over. The other individual in the car decided to follow them out onto the highway and began aggressively driving and trying to cut them off. And eventually, he pulled a handgun and fired shots into the truck, killing David, the 17-year-old. Now, the 17-year-old was not driving. He was not the one that started the altercation. He had nothing to do with it. He was just a passenger in his dad's truck, not thinking, am I going to make it home tonight? That's the problem when we don't exercise self-control. And it's a big problem. I hope that we've never encountered something so drastic as that, but it just goes to show the extremes that we can go to when we fail to exercise self-control. Because are there laws against that? Sure. Are there police that enforce those laws? Sure. But is it always 24-7 there's going to be a policeman right there when you need them? No, I can attest to this, because every time I see a knucklehead driving, I always think, man, if only a police person were here, I could catch him. You know, when I don't think that, it's when I'm driving like a knucklehead. But that's another story, right? Yeah, I'm glad there's not a police person here. So, yeah, the, the, the whole idea of self-control is huge. And, and for Christ followers, it's absolutely essential, because we have something special 
uh, in our self-control. It's different from the rest of the world. But you may have struggled with issues of self-control. I know I do. I, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I struggled with self-control yesterday and this morning. Did, would you believe me? Believe it, man. Because I was there. I, was, I had my sermon prep done. Uh, we had a, a great fun staff activity last night. And I was like, yeah, I'll do my PowerPoint slides when I get home. <laughs> yeah, I didn't do that. Because uh, my self-control was like, you know what? I'm tired. I'm going to go to bed. So uh, I had to get up early. And then I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to get up early. I'm going to do my PowerPoint slides. And I got this one piece of the sermon just didn't sit right. So I did, I'll, I'll just rewrite that little piece. And I look at the clock, and I've got 15 minutes. I'm just being totally transparent here. I have 15 minutes before I have to leave, and i got no PowerPoint slides. So you get what you get this morning because of my lack of self-control, but it's still good. It's all going to work out because the Holy Spirit is going to work through this. All right, so uh, you may have struggled with things like, I don't know, uh, binge-watching, binge-eating, uh, whatever it is. There, there are numbing agents that we bring into our lives sometimes when reality just gets to a little too much. And, and by that, I mean... Sometimes those binge watches are just meant to numb the world. Sometimes they're more serious. We, we may turn to alcohol or drugs or work. Ever heard the term workaholic? I did that at one point in my life. I sought solace from the craziness by just, I'll just work hard. I'll be working so hard that nothing else can, can invade my personal headspace. That didn't work out well. I learned a valuable life lesson there, but that's another sermon for another time. You have probably experienced problems with self-control because it makes us human if we were perfect we would never struggle with this but let's be honest we're human here's what the bible has to say about a person who has no self-control it's like a city whose walls are broken through that's a person who lacks self-control now think about that picture for just a second a city whose walls are broken those walls protect the city from bad things that makes sense so if I uh, have self-control, Bill, does that mean there'll be no bad things in my life? I wish that were true. Uh, it, it is not true. It's the fallen world that we live in. But here's the other thing about walls. Not only does it help keep bad things out, it helps keep good things in. So as we think about what do our walls look like, if, if, if this is the city that we live in, WordServe, we're going to be subject to every whim of society as they come through the ideas, practices, what's popular, what's cool, we're going to react to that instead of protect against that. Now, why is that such a big deal? Because we tell our kids that they should have strong walls. You should exercise self-control, but do we? And why is that such a big deal? Well, here's the thing. We tell our kids one thing, but we tell our society an entire another thing. What do I mean by that? Well, here's an example. Same case where I just talked about David. Uh, the 17-year-old the that got shot. Right after that, of course, the, the immediate concern was there was a manhunt. There was, you know, who's uh, get the, subs the, the description out. And they actually ended up finding the guy. The guy ended up turning himself in because the public pressure was kind of closing in on him. And so they have the guy, and he's, he's going to go through the, the process. But here's the thing that always amazes me about self-control. The, the next thing that came out was, well, we need better gun control. Okay. Um, so when guns do bad things, we just need to control the guns. Got it. Um, when somebody overdoses on drugs, the first thing that comes out, we need better laws about drugs. In fact, 
let's wage a war on drugs. Do you see the, the commonalities? We as a society, and I'm not just talking about word serve, I'm talking about America and the, the larger culture, we blame shift. Did the gun kill the kid or did the guy holding the gun kill the kid? Did the drugs kill the kid or did the fact that they're using drugs to excess kill the kid? See, it's a heart condition. That's the problem. And here's what we tell society. When you have something go wrong and it's related to self-control, it's not you. It's the thing. And if we just legislate the thing, then everything will be okay. But here's the problem with that. We're addressing symptoms, but we're not treating the disease. And as long as we continue to address symptoms, we're never going to cure the disease. This is where we not only have something to offer, church, we have the answer. That answer is Holy Spirit-led self-control. Because against such things, there is no law, and we'll make a case for that. Stand by for more. So what we're going to do is we're going to start way back in the Old Testament. We're going to journey our way up through Paul and uh, hopefully do this in, in a short order. But I want to set the stage real briefly. Uh, we're going to go back to Exodus chapter 16 if you're playing the home game. I would encourage you to read the whole chapter of Exodus 16. I'm going to specifically be talking just about verses 13 through 20. But it's that time where the Israelites have been freed from Egypt. Moses has led them into the wilderness. Um, it's far enough where the excitement has kind of burned off a little bit. And they're hungry. And they're grumbling. And they go, you know... At least back there, we had three squares a day, and I could sit by the pot and eat meat. And, and Moses was like, seriously, you were slaves. Why are you worried about this? And so God hears their grumbling, and God makes a deal with them. He goes, okay, you know what? I'm going to feed you. So in Exodus 16, we start to see this thing called manna come down from heaven. Now, this is a picture of simulated manna. Um, I don't know what manna looks like. Uh, in fact, the Israelites didn't know what it looked like either because as it began to rain down in, in uh, dew-like uh, substance on the grass that they would glean in the morning and then they could eat it, they asked, what is it? They didn't know. So the, the experts say that the, the Hebrew phrase for what is it sounds like manna, right? I have my own philosophy on this. I think the, the Hebrew word is actually the word for they're great, because they were the original Frosted Flakes. I'm just saying. That's, all right. <laughs> so what is the whole purpose of this manna? What are we doing in this? Let me read verses uh, 13 through 20 out of Exodus 16. Knowing now that we've set the stage, they're grumbled. God says, I'm going to feed you. Not only does he feed them manna, but he actually causes quail to drop from the sky. He was like the original Uber Eats guy. This is so cool. Here we go. That evening, quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. Now this is what the Lord has commanded. Each one is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some gathered little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Each one had gathered just as much as they needed. 
Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. This is the word of God for the people of God, and for these words we are grateful. Now imagine being Moses and giving this direction that you have gotten from God. It's pretty clear instruction, pretty easy. Gather what you need for this day. Don't store it. Don't keep it till morning. But some decided to test it, a lack of self-control. So I have to ask myself, what was the whole point in this manna exercise, and what is the point that God brings in these instructions? I think there are two tests that God is, is working on here. The first test is just store enough for one day. Now, why is that a test? Well, it's hard for us in our situation here today to think about where's my next meal coming from? Because the extent of, of trouble that I have when I answer that question is, where's my next meal coming from? Let's see, do I want to go to pizza or Mexican or, you know what I mean? I'm not in the middle of the desert with hundreds of thousands of my closest friends with nothing to eat going, where's the next meal coming from? There's not enough game in this desert to feed us. See, they have to, everything, their literal lives are riding on God's provision. And God does provide. So when he says, don't gather any more than you need for one day, I'm thinking, you know, man, I'm, I'm a planner. I, I want to get out ahead of this. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to store enough for my family and maybe for a month, two months. I don't know when this man is coming again. But God says, just enough for one day. And if they kept it any longer than that, you saw the results. It smelled bad, had maggots, not something you want to eat. But the second test then came... <clears throat> came when he said, don't gather on the Sabbath. Here's the cool thing about manna. It was good for one day, except prior to the Sabbath. Because then you could gather enough and you could have it last over the Sabbath. So you didn't have to go out and gather it on the Sabbath. And here's the other cool thing about that is if you look at it further in, in Exodus 16, he says, you can boil it, you can bake it, whatever you need to keep it for the Sabbath and it will still be good. Think about this for a minute. This is how wonderful God is, how amazing he is. When it fell and then the sun came out, came out and it eventually burned it all away, right? There was no more manna. So how's it you can bake it or boil it and eat it the next day? I don't know. I'm not God. And thank God I'm not God because you'd all be in trouble, right? But this is just an amazing thing. Now, you may recognize some specific wording that shows up later. When Jesus uh, has this wonderful prayer life and his disciples go, Lord, teach us to pray. One of the most familiar phrases that you will hear in Jesus saying in the Lord's Prayer is, give us this day our daily bread. Guess where that comes from? You think Jesus knew this story? Yeah. So what's the point behind this test? The point is God is reaching out and establishing a relationship. And this relationship is based on God's love and the people's trust in God. This is a race of people that have been slaves generationally. Some, they have never known freedom in their lives. And so God is reestablishing this idea of, I can provide for you. You can trust in me. And the ultimate test is, do they gather just enough for one day? Do they trust me? Why is that so significant? Because if you play out the rest of the Exodus story, what's about to happen next when it comes to rules? Ten Commandments are coming. 
If you can't even figure out how to not gather manna over the Sabbath, how are you ever going to deal with the Ten Commandments? And the Ten Commandments sound so burdensome sometimes. They sound like, oh, this heavy bunch of rules, do this, don't do that. Actually, it's a lot of do-nots. But there's a reason for that, and that reason is founded in love. God's rules are meant to protect us, to keep us safe, just like your parental rules are designed to keep your children safe. Same deal. But you can't always be there for your kids. You can't always be there to say, you know, you need to look both ways before you cross the street, all those things. Wash your hands before you eat, cover your mouth when you sneeze. Those are all meant out of love. But you're not hovering over them every second of every day making sure they do that. What we have to do is teach them to self-control, to self-regulate. Same thing with God. Now, God is a little different because God can hover around. He does see everything, but he's not going to make you do things. That's the other hard part. It's, it's difficult to swallow. If God really loved us, why would he let all this happen? Because God loves us. If I don't love by choice, it's not love. If I'm forced to love, that's not true love. That's not what God wants. So there's this weird conundrum. I get to choose, and I can choose wrong, but God wants me to love and wants me to obey out of love. That's where it gets a, a little bit weird. The other th interesting thing about this is uh, look at what God's doing here. He has just freed them from Egypt, and, and one of the plagues, a couple of the plagues actually, are designed to destroy their crops of Egypt. The best agricultural system of its time, all the science, all the farming, all that stuff, and God goes, wipes it out. And then turns to the Israelites who have nothing in the middle of the desert and goes, I will provide for you. There's a weird play on food. I'll take yours away and I'll provide yours because I'm God. I can do that. So that would make me trust that even more, I think. All right. So what he's testing is what's in their hearts here. And he wants to know how they're going to do with that because it's about time for the Ten Commandments. There's also two truths that we need to look at here. The first one is this. We are made for self-control, not self-rule. Let me say that again. We are made for self-control, but not self-rule. Anytime we try to rule ourselves, it doesn't end well. And the Bible is full of examples. You can probably think of examples in your own life where you've tried to do it my way. The gospel according to Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. And God said, oh, no, you didn't. <laughs> And there's some consequences that can come from that. It's not always pleasant. But one of the reasons I know this is um, in John 14, if you do want to turn to John 14, 23, 24. Jesus is, is talking, uh, this is beginning of the farewell discourse, but he says this about this relationship between love and obedience. He says, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them, and we will make our home in them. Now, the, the flip side of this, anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. So this idea of love and obedience is intimately tied together. It starts with God testing the Israelites with manna and then the Ten Commandments, and then it goes all the way through Jesus. It says, if you really love me, You'll obey my teaching. And if you don't obey my teaching, then you must not really love me. Is that a zinger for anybody else? 
it was for me in the preparation of this. Ooh, that one kind of hurt. That one stung a little. If I really loved him, I would obey him. So am I perfect? No. Uh, and unless your name is Jesus Christ, you're not either. Um, but the good news is there's grace and forgiveness in the midst of all this, the same loving God that calls us back. So that's the first thing that we need to pay attention to. We are not made for self-control. Uh, we are made for self-control, but not self-rule. The second truth that we need to watch out for is self-control is not self-contained. Self-control is not self-contained, meaning I can't just summon up willpower and expect to live a life of a disciple of Christ. I don't have that much willpower, as you saw in my slide preparation from last night. I don't have the willpower when I'm tired, when I'm down, when I'm sick, when I'm fatigued, whatever the, the case may be. And guess when the enemy strikes? Do, do they strike when, when you're surrounded by friends and loving accountability and you're full up, healthy, rested, all that stuff? No, no, no. The enemy's smarter than that. They're going to wait until that time when you're down, and then he's going to pounce. At least that's been my experience. I don't know about you. Self-control is not self-contained. Now, this is good news, bad news. Bad news is we can't do this by ourselves. The good news is there's an even more powerful force that's available to us. So if you want to, to follow along in Galatians 5, we're going to jump over there. Galatians 5, 23 this might sound familiar to you. Uh, this is Paul writing. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and there it is, and self-control. The way that this is listed is interesting to me. This is what he says, against such things there is no law. But you notice the lead is love. That's the very first thing he mentions when it comes to the fruit. Uh, fruit of the Spirit is love. That's the capstone. But the very last thing is self-control. Now, if you're a communicator, you know there are very important things attached to the first and last things that you say. The first thing you say is usually the preface. This is what leads everything. Love leads. The last thing that you say is the summary of all the things that went before because you want them to remember that. What's the last thing Paul says? Self-control. God leads with love, but the summary of all this fruit is self-control by the Spirit. Not my own, but by the Spirit. That's something that might be a little bit hard to grasp, but let's keep going. We'll see if we can make sense of this. So here's what we do. If we want to get serious about this uh, idea of self-control, is we adopt um, a mindset as though we're hiring a coach or a trainer. And that coach or trainer's name is the Holy Spirit. That coach or trainer will remind us of everything that Jesus said. He will remind us of his teachings. He'll be our advocate. He will help us along the way. But if you went out and you spent the money to hire a professional trainer, you're not going to blow them off. And here's another couple things about professional trainers. Now, I have a daughter who is a certified trainer. Uh, she tortures me all the time. I love her but I hate her. You know, anybody else with me? <laughs> it's like, I love her because she's you know, my own flesh and blood. I love her because she has a passion for what she does, and I think she's pretty good at it, not that I'm biased. Um, but man, when my body is sore and aching, I hate that little girl. <laughs> I think she does it on purpose to get back at me for her upbringing. I'm pretty sure that's the way that goes. 
But no, don't, uh, if you're watching, I love you. All right, so um, what we don't want to do is, is uh, blow off this trainer because they know what they're doing. They're, they're providing this training out of an expertise, just like God is going to provide a Holy Spirit trainer for us. So there are three things that you need to think about in this mindset. The first thing is to give up. Give up anything that's going to get in your way of training or development. My daughter tells me these stories all the time. She'll get a client that will come in and say something like, um, my family's going to the beach this summer. I need to get my body in shape because I don't want to look like <laughs> whatever on the beach, right? Or uh, I'm getting married in you name the month, and I need to fit into this wedding dress. And she's like, great. Yeah, we can totally work on that. And some clients never make progress. They, they, they may get a little stronger or their cardio may get better, but they don't really start to... Sh- change shape. And so then uh, her her mother comes out in her and she begins asking really piercing questions. It's annoying, right? Like, what kind of rest are you getting? What's your diet look like? And oh, well, you know, I just uh, have a glass of wine every night and uh, five margaritas on the weekend. (laughs) Well, no wonder, right? (laughs) This isn't just a piece of a package. You can't just do this one thing and not do all these other things. You have to have self-control over a wide area. It's called a lifestyle. Oh, by the way, so is Christianity. It's called a lifestyle. It's not just the one thing. Oh, you know what? I'm going to work on my anger. Okay, I got my anger mastered. Yeah, what about all the other stuff? You see how it works? You can't just pick one thing and and ignore the rest of it. So this coach trainer encourages us to give up the things that will not bode well for our spiritual maturity, encourages self-control by the Holy Spirit. If you're an athlete, there's a, there's a saying, um, let me see, uh, liberties are for spectators, not for competitive athletes. Think about it. Liberties are for spectators, not for competitive athletes. That means that if you're a competitive athlete, I bet you ask any one of those people at the Tokyo Olympics that is a, a, a physical sport, uh, is somebody watching what you eat? Is somebody watching your rest, how much rest you get? Are you stretching, not just working out? All those things, all those lifestyle things are coming into play, I guarantee. And so someone is telling them what to do. Well, isn't that a rule? Yes, but the purpose of the rule is to maximize their performance, to grow them into full maturity as an athlete. Just like God through Jesus and the Holy Spirit's goal is to grow us into the full maturity of Christ. That's the whole point of this relationship of love and following. So we've got to give up all those things that will get in the way. The second thing we have to do is to pick up. Pick up habits that will help us to mature. So maybe there is a coach or trainer that you know. Uh, we, we tend to call those mentors, uh, or we tend to call them uh, disciple makers, things like that. Maybe there's somebody who is a, a spiritually buff person, <laughs> someone who you look up to and go, man, I know their life is not perfect, but they have a depth to them. I wonder if I could get to know them and and kind of pick their brain and maybe have them help me along the way. Folks, that's what community is all about. We're not meant to do this alone any more than we're meant to try to self-control by ourselves. We're not meant to grow on our own either. So don't hesitate to pick up those things that will help you. And then finally, we need to look up because when we look around, we start to compare. Uh, can you believe they did that? That's, that's the negative side. Or I could never be like that. God doesn't call us to comparison. 
God calls us to freedom. That's what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Don't compare yourself to other people. Look up, because that's where the source of all this is going to come from. True self-control is not from within, and it's not even from without. It's from up above. That's the Holy Spirit working in and through us. So here's what I would like for us to do, Lord Serve. I would like us to do a fruit check. Fruit check on aisle nine. Aisle nine, fruit check. So here's what this means. Uh, we just read all these fruits, uh, uh, the fruit. Now, this is important. It's not fruits of the Holy Spirit. It is fruit, singular, of the Holy Spirit. Because when you read a list like love, joy, patience, goodness, kindness, oh, that sounds so wonderful. I'm going to pick one and work on that. No, no, no. It's the fruit of one thing, and that one thing is the Holy Spirit. So if you're looking for a place to concentrate, concentrate on inviting the Holy Spirit into your life and watch what happens naturally. That's the beauty of it. So here's the fruit check. Now, what I didn't read to you and and what is equally telling is the verse right before Galatians 5, 22, 23, because that's the fruit of the Spirit. There's also the fruit of the flesh, and we don't talk about that a lot, but let me read it for you. This is right before that, Galatians 5, starting in verse 19. The acts of the sinful nature, your Bible may may say the flesh, are, uh, are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, and the list goes on. So here's the fruit check. Here's the way this works. All you have to do is take stock of your life. And, and here's the two trees in word form. <laughs> so the, the fruit is on the top of the tree. The root is at the bottom. So, for example, on the left of the screen, you see all the fruit of the flesh. If your life is characterized by those things, guess where you're drawing from? Guess where we're drawing from? Because I will include myself in that. We're drawing from the flesh. That's not a good place to end up. It's not going to feed your you. It's not going to feed society. It's not going to feed anybody anything worth eating. However, if we can live by the Spirit, guided by the Spirit, then we get these other things like love, joy, peace, patience, and notice self-control still makes the list. That's the answer, church. Like I said at the beginning, we don't just have a suggestion. We don't just have something to offer. We have the answer. That answer is through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit to live by the Spirit, to be guided by the Spirit, and to exhibit all that fruit. And if we can do that attractively to the world, then they'll see the answer too. It shouldn't be a thing where we judge people like, you're a terrible person because you... Because (laughs) I've told you this story before, but I still think it's funny. I used to tell my girls, every time you point a finger, there are three fingers pointed back at you. So ask any Hogan girl to point now. This is how they point. It's over there. So don't be this person. It's not about you. It's about us. And I will look at myself three times before I would look at anybody else in a judgmental way. I I hope that's helpful and instructive. uh, But if not, it's at least food for thought. 
This is not something that we're meant to do by ourselves. This is something that the Spirit is more than willing to do through us, but we've got to get out of the way and let it do its work. I think that's the hardest part for me sometimes. As a society, though, here's the kicker. If we keep doing what we've been doing, we're going to keep getting what we've been getting. And so when you look at dissension in the news, when you look at the hatred, the violence, the discord, the disunity, the factions, does that list sound familiar? It's because our society is drawn from the flesh. And we have the answer. We totally have the answer. What would it look like to live in a world controlled by the Spirit, guided by the Spirit, out of love? What would it look like to live in a world full of love and joy and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control? I don't know. It might look like a world where a 17-year-old isn't worried if he's going to make it home at night. It may look like a world where a 17-year-old could go and enjoy a baseball game with a family and live happily ever after. Will you pray with me, please? God, I confess that I am no expert when it comes to self-control. But God, I am so thankful for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, who is the most self-controlled person in the world. So thankful for his example where he doesn't say or do anything that he doesn't hear or see the Father doing. And even as we read today, the words that he speaks are not his words, but the words of the Father. Jesus was a man who never sinned, who never gave in to the pettiness, who never overlooked his mission to save, seek and save the lost. So God, we cannot live up to that example of our own power, and we recognize that this morning, but at the same time, we're hopeful because we know the Holy Spirit can help us do that. So God, pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here. Let us be not just better, but made new this morning. And let us live out of love by the spirit of self-control. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.